Welcome, everybody, to Church in the Wild. This is Seth Trimmer, and I have a very special guest to share with you guys on this episode. It's Dr. Brian Miller, and he is an amazing scientist with lots of degrees from very prestigious places. And uh, he travels the world and works very specifically in the scientific world to try to integrate the realms of faith and science and, and do it from a scientific perspective, something that I know a lot of people are both curious about and really interested in. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do today on Church in the Wild. Dr. Brian Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so this is really fun. We actually just got done with, with lunch and have already had a bevy of interesting topics that we've processed. And I think we've about a quarter of the world's problems we've been able to solve so far. So we'll see if we can get to the rest of them here. Um, but what I have always kind of found is kind of the beginning interesting point of your life story, of which there are many, is you came to college and actually like lost your faith kind of beginning in the realm of science and education and learning that you're doing. You want to help describe for us kind of what that journey was like? Yeah, certainly. A part of it was I took a class on the Bible taught by a skeptical professor, and that started to really make me question, how do I understand the Bible? Is the book of Genesis uh, historical? Were we really created by God? Um, can we trust the scriptures? But then I also read a book by Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard Dawkins is one of the patron saints of atheism. Yes. And he wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And he argued that when you look at nature, you think you may see design, but it's all an illusion, that we're simply here by the blind forces of nature. And after reading that, I became pretty convinced that God did not exist. I really hoped that God did exist, but I, I wasn't. I really had serious doubts, and I remember just thinking. You're a freshman, like in the dorms at this time. I was, I was a freshman, eighteen years old. Yeah, or? about eighteen years old. Okay, as a freshman. Yeah, and what? Sorry, what? Where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergraduate at MIT. Oh, you did. Okay, Excellent. and I studied physics. Excellent. Because I was curious about how the universe worked. Yeah, I was actually mentioning to our staff, you know, that uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the mascot of MIT. Uh, it's the beavers. Oh yes, yeah, yes. you're the beavers in yes. here at Oregon State. Very industrial organ. So we have that. We have that in common. We have that in common. Maybe not the intellectual prowess of uh, of our you know alumni, but uh, we share our mascot in common. So there we go. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you about these deep <laughs> issues. So. That's right. Yes. Uh, so yes. So you're a freshman. You've read Dawkins. One of yeah. the what is it? The four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Know? He's one of the four horsemen. People yeah, like yeah. that. And, and Lawrence Krauss. He's yep. another atheist who's a physicist. And I really was confronted with the issue of why do I believe Christianity is true? Yeah. And obviously, because you grew up in the church. Yeah, I grew up in the church. I was raised Catholic. Okay. And what happened was for me, it was uh, more of a cultural experience. Yeah. And then I read through the New Testament. And it became more clear. And it was really funny because when I first really believed in Christianity was when I first really doubted. Interesting. Yeah, because if it's not that important to you, there's no real reason to question it if it's just part of the backdrop of your life. But if you suddenly try to wait, put the weight of your life on it, then you really care if it's true. So it was at that moment that I was flooded with questions and doubts. That's really important to note. I find as a pastor that the whole issue of doubt gets shrouded in so much almost secrecy and almost shame at times for people that really struggle through and ask a lot of, a lot of questions. But I've, I've, I've always found that personally, I can identify with you, that doubt has actually been like a positive thing. There can be a negative, I think it's a double-edged sword, but when doubt is just simply a curiosity to say like, this really is important and matters to me, and if I'm going to base my life on it, I better have a reasonable amount of confidence in it, then doubt is actually a thing that can lead you further into it versus maybe what we classically understand is just a stubborn refusal to believe despite evidence, which I don't think is actually, I wouldn't say that's doubt, I would categorize that more as unbelief. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I really see that too, those two different paths. Like for mm -hmm. me, I seriously question, but my response to the questions was turning to God. Gotcha. And saying, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do exist, I will follow you. Just tell me the truth, give me evidence, and I'll serve you. Yeah. Versus others where it really is more of a pride. It's like, well, I'm just sort of smarter than these religious people, and I want to be accepted by the intellectual elite. So doubt is driven not by a desire for truth, but for a desire for accept acceptance by certain people in a certain amount of pride and independence. Right. Yeah, so there you are, and you're you're reading Dawkins, mm -hmm. and you're you're going through this doubt. And what was the, I mean, what was the turning point for you? I mean, how dark did it get before you eventually came back? 
Well, it was pretty dark because as a freshman, I would stare at the ceiling at night thinking, am I going to just cease existing after I die? Okay. <laughs> and uh, Typical typical freshman thoughts. Yeah, exactly. So other people were thinking about the party they wanted to go yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. How much homework. beer am I going to drink before I pass out tonight? Kind you of know, like... I was thinking of this sort of existential question of ultimate oh, existence. Oh, my goodness. And I... Um, how's your, I'm just curious. How's like your mental health holding up under the weight of that kind of level of questions? Well, it was stressful. My, <clears throat> my uh, work suffered because of the preoccupation. And it was really hard because I was in a Christian community. But again, as you mentioned, often there's a shame attached to questioning. Yes. And often there's a sense by people that do go through doubts that other people don't understand, they don't question, they just yeah. accept. Yep. So there was a, a sense of, of isolation in that sense. Yeah. So it was a very hard time, and there was only a few people I talked to about my questions. And I, again, I was really seeking what is the truth, and that's what really led me in my journey of studies and investigation. Gotcha. And so where did that investigation begin? Well, uh, there really was some really pinnacle books that helped me a lot. Uh, one book was a book called Evolution, A Theory, and Crisis okay. by a, a man um, named Michael Denton. Okay. And he was, uh, he, he was a professor of biochemistry, and uh, he was not speaking from a religious perspective because I knew there were people that were religious Christians that would critique evolution or they would talk about belief in God, but it seemed like they were coming from the perspective of faith. This person was a skeptic. He had no particular religious beliefs, but he just simply felt that the evidence that were here by the blind forces of Darwinian evolution didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So he went through a lot of critiques of that. And amazingly, a lot of those critiques have stood up over time. And what I realized when I read the, the critics of the book is that they were either misrepresenting the arguments or mm. they weren't, they were ignoring key evidence. That's really telling, isn't it? It is. I find that that's happening just prolifically anymore. Maybe it's just the polarization of where our culture is going. Oh, yes. But you see far more of a characterization, almost a straw man kind of sense of argument, right, than really finding people that clearly understand or even have a base level respect for something that's being said that you even disagree with. And that's how I always evaluate arguments, is I always look from an argument, the counter-argument, the yes. counter to that, and I go back and forth. And what usually happens is someone is misrepresenting the other side because they can't address the, the argument, mm. or they're ignoring it. Yeah. And that's where I know one side has a superior place over the other. Yeah. It's especially telling when they have to go to personal attacks, right? Oh, oh when it goes to personal attacks, you know that they have they can't respond intellectually so yeah. they're trying to distract people away from the evidence yeah yeah it's really telling all just really good pro tip level kind of stuff to navigate our cultural waters these yeah. days for yeah. sure but uh, it's nothing new under the sun here obviously this is this is stuff that's been going on a long time and so so that's actually you're actually able to clue into that i mean that's a fairly like what a meta level sort of thinking mm -hmm. for someone at that kind of an age to be able to read a text that you find compelling and then look through the criticisms that might be even more generally accepted in culture or, or at least the scientific community, the critiques, but you're actually seeing through them that no, 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 they're not actually dealing fairly with the arguments being made. And what I've, I've been at this for about 30 years. So whenever I present an argument, I'd like to present it first to my critics. Ah. And then I want to really test the waters to see, am I missing something? Is there a research paper I haven't read? Is there a piece of logic that may not be sound? So I put my arguments out there and just let people to go at it. And then yeah. eventually what I see is there's no response. And then I know I've got a really solid argument that I can then use uh, regularly. Yeah. Which I think is actually a helpful thing to do just for a pro-ministry tip. If you aren't doing that from your pulpit, if you're creating caricatures of whether it's the agnostic or the atheist or the classical sinner, whatever that looks like, you know, in your context, and you're not creating it just a reasonable, like, a facsimile of what someone like that would actually believe and where they're actually coming from, assuming best possible motivations as much as you can, people are going to tune out. And what I like to do is I like to get inside the mind of my skeptic, yes. my critic. I yeah. want to know what they're thinking, why they think it, what's the logic, what are the assumptions, what are their best arguments. So I want to be able to present their argument as well and as carefully as they can. I knew I liked you, Brian Miller, just but it's just being overly from 100%. This is my preaching yeah. philosophy. I know you're doing it from a scientific mm -hmm. perspective, which is far more of that kind of 
um, debate, mm -hmm. dialogical uh, sort of system. But that's exactly how I approach preaching from that exact same angle. If I'm not making the case for someone else's worldview mm -hmm. or, or perspective or opinion, as good, if not better than they can make it, I actually heard Timothy Keller say that one time, I want to make the case for someone else's opinion even better than they mm -hmm. could make it, more intelligently. Actually take someone, like a lay person sort of opinion, and put a layer of extra intellect and thoughtfulness upon it so that when someone hears it, they're like, oh, yes in that, you know? And then once they feel like you've really respected where they're at, or could even potentially be that if they were well studied enough or well thought out enough, I feel like then they're gonna be more open to hear something that's gonna challenge it. Yeah, and, and I find what's extremely helpful <clears throat> with people of good conscience yes. when I talk with them is to help really identify what are the assumptions we're dealing with. Yeah. What, um, what are the core beliefs that drive what we think the lens? And then I can, what I can do then is talk about, explain to them, how do I see the world from my lens? Mm. And then why do I feel like my lens creates a more coherent picture of reality? Mm. And what are the tensions and the inconsistencies with their lens and their perspective? And that's something I use generally even in just engaging a person, not just about science, but about faith in general. Yeah. And that's in my philosophy for people is not to attack them, not to be their adversary, but their advocate. Like I'm saying, I want to help you see reality. Would you like me to help you to see that? Yeah. Would you like to see the world from a different perspective and see why I believe that makes the world make more sense? Yeah. And not everyone says yes to that? Yeah. It, what happens is people, it's more rare for people to really want to know the truth versus to believe what's comfortable, what mm -hmm. I find. Mm -hmm. That's very true. I would actually say that's also as true of the more classical religious community as yes. well, and not maybe being open to refining their thoughts. Because sometimes you can believe, quote unquote, the right thing, but you don't have necessarily good evidence or reasoning to support it. You know, I'm sure you see that a lot kind of in the scientific debate. Oh, realm. absolutely. And, and the question, and, and this is true in any belief system, is when you make take ownership of it where it's not like someone has handed this to you and you receive it and you want to believe it because it's kind of traditional. It, it's what your friends believe. Yeah. But you want to really look and ask the question, is it really true? Yeah. And then you take ownership to really prove it to yourself, to really understand why it's true. Yeah. And then it's something you're not, you're not afraid to ask questions in yeah. because there's a confidence, there's an assurance. And then you're able to present that to others in ways that are empowering to them. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. So if we picked up back on the story again, I mean, there you are, and you're kind of in the in the depths of biology, which I remember yeah. as a freshman, that's exactly where I went. That was biology 101, 102, 103, one of those in the initial kind of core sequence of my back core science classes I had to take freshman year. And sure enough, like I wasn't even a Christian at the time, yeah. but I remember it being a large room because it was a mandatory class, like all freshmen and sophomores are in it. And sure enough, there's just a small, there was a very small pocket of the room you could tell was visibly uncomfortable and questioning the professor. And you can tell the professor was doing a very careful dance, mm -hmm. you know, with these, and I didn't really understand it because I didn't understand the tension between Christianity and, and science at that point. And evolution didn't seem like, you know, it's all I'd ever heard about. So it didn't seem like something that would be questioned. Um, but I mean, this is a common freshman experience that you're actually thinking past, not just the, the information you're being brought in, but you're mm -hmm. kind of at the ground level of everything at this point. That seems to be where people are introduced into an anti-theistic view. It seems to be evolution as the gateway into that. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's really helpful to understand kind of the larger cultural context, because even if you go back to the ancient Greeks, <clears throat> you have like the philosophers, like the atomists, a Democritus, you have people like the Epicureans, and their view of reality was that there was no creator. There was no intelligent force behind it. It was just chance and time. Mm -hmm. And they naturally had an idea of evolution. So the idea of evolution is nothing recent. It's not with Darwin. It's like any culture that denies that there's a designer, there's a creator, has to argue that random chance and time will produce anything that you see, even those things that look designed. Okay. And the ancient Greeks even had an, an, an idea of, of evolution with natural selection. <laughs> obviously more primitive, but it was still there. So when you look at Darwin, it's not new. It's It was more of a repackaged idea in a much more scientific context. Mm -hmm. And it's also the fact that a lot of what he said was true. You do see natural selections yes. at a very small scale level. And then what he did was he assumed that when you see the similarities in nature, like why all mammals have certain features, 
That was because they all came from a common ancestor, and that ancestor evolved through natural selection, where the small changes you see today can create the large changes we see in nature. And people that have studied Darwin realized what happened was that was a change in our understanding of the world. Because people, when they saw life, they saw design. Everyone recognized design was real. But with Darwin, he said, the appearance of design is an illusion. It's not true. It's simply a byproduct of the natural processes of nature. So what happens is that is not simply a scientific theory, but it became a sort of creation mythology, a creation narrative for the Enlightenment, which is a period of history when people wanted to throw off the idea of a creator, of being involved in the world, and say that everything is the process of everything is the product of natural processes. We don't need a creator. Mm-hmm. We just simply can figure out the world through science and reason. And that was their creation story. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So where, what holes are you finding in this line of thinking? Well, what happens is, again, it's again we talk about lenses. And yeah. the challenge is, and I need to use an analogy to really appreciate this, is back when people believed that the Earth was a center of the universe, they um, would interpret everything through that lens. It's called the Ptolemaic cosmological model. And what happened is, is evidence came in that con- contradicted that idea. Like you would see orbits of planets that would move one way than the other, a retrograde orbit. Mm-hmm. They would cr- have to fix the data because it didn't fit, and they'd create what are called epicycles. So they would assume they were circles in circles. And what happened is more and more data started to come in. It would contradict that model. So there would be more patchwork theories to try to force the data in that model. Mm. When you look at evolution, what happens is there's a very straightforward expectation. You'd expect to look in the fossil record um, over time. You'd see animals evolving and changing. You'd have this branching tree. But when people saw the fossil record, what they eventually realized was that's not what it looks like. What you see is you have cells that go very far back in history, but then about 550 million years, 550 million years ago, you would see the first appearance of the major animal body plans we recognize today. Something like uh, an echinoderm, which is like a starfish, or like a um, arthropod, which is like a modern insect. Mm-hmm. There were trilobi- trilobites back in the day. So whenever these radically new creatures appeared, they appeared suddenly, and then whenever a new species appeared, it wouldn't change. Hmm. So what happens is the fossil record doesn't look like this gradual evolving process. It looks like species were just put there by a designer. So that's a huge conflict. And then Mm. you have people like Stephen Jay Gould that came up with an idea called punctuated equilibrium. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. And that's not an explanation. That's an observation. Okay. We observe that's what happens. So we'll say that's what evolution does. It just creates things and things change very, very quickly. And then they don't change at all. Another problem. Is there some kind of naturalistic explanation for why that would be the phenomenon of how things came to be? Well, again, you have stories. So most of the evolutionary theory functions through stories, but the stories always collapse when you look at details. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to deal with the the example of the Cambrian explosion, there is a famous, uh, there's a biologist named Charles Marshall, who's one of the leaders of the of the of this topic. And the Cambrian explosion is that instance you're talking about yeah. in the fossil record where yes. things just seem to start appearing. Yeah, so the yeah. Cambrian explosion is that sudden appearance of radical new um, large animal types, which we call phyla, that appeared suddenly. And then when once they appeared, they stayed pretty much the same. Okay. And his argument is he says, okay, this is a problem. So what, now a second problem I have to mention before I mention Charles Marshall is the idea of evolution is that you have mutations that give you more genetic variety, and then that can be selected to create change. Okay. An example would be sickle cell anemia. You have a mutation that changes a red blood cell that helps you fight malaria. Mm. It has lots of other negative aspects if you have both alleles, but that's another story. Now, there's a problem. All beneficial mutations or non-harmful mutations have effects that only affect, um, that have superficial effects on an organism. Typically, you're actually breaking genes. But if you want to change, let's say, a fish into an amphibian, you've got to mutate genes that affect the the organization of your body, where your organs are. Is it bilateral symmetry? Is it radial symmetry? And what happens is mutations to those genes are always harmful. So if you look at people who study mutations on fruit flies or on sea urchins or things like that, mm-hmm. what they find is that the mutations that could affect your basic organization of your body are never helpful. They're always detrimental if Mm -hmm. they're expressed. Mm -hmm. So Charles Marshall said, okay, that's a problem. 
But let's assume that the way genetics worked in these organisms in the past was completely different. So the genetics of organisms before the Cambrian explosion is totally different, so that the mutations could actually create large-scale effects which weren't harmful. Mm. So all these changes took place, and then once uh, these different phyla, phy, a phylum came into existence, then suddenly all of them would switch so that they would have the sort of genetics we're used to today. Hmm. Now, the problem with that theory is there's no evidence for it. You don't see all these creatures in the past before the Cambrian explosion that seem to have different genetics. You have no basis to argue that the genetics was different from the past. It's just a story. So that's an example of how people explain problems with stories that when you try to look at the details, either the details are impossible to study or else they're ignored. Interesting. Just from a kid that grew up in public school, you know, with no religious, you know, background, church background of any kind, so no theistic awareness yeah. of creationism. I think the first time I met a, a Christian that was actually vocal about it was in biology class in high school. And I, she, she said, like, after class one time, after studying biology, said, like, yeah, I don't really believe in biology. And I thought, how... Like our, te our teacher just said it. It says it right here in the textbook. What yeah. do you mean you don't believe it? Yeah. I don't think we're allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. You're going to flunk. What's wrong with you? Like that was my, so that was my whole background and appearance. And so from my very unscientific but just casual observation, it just seems like there's so many things that look like they make sense. I mean, they give you the animated drawing oh, yeah, yeah. of like a fish that kind of yeah. has the fins that eventually yeah. start turning into legs yeah. and those like and like the the like the nose that eventually travels up to the mm -hmm. top if you're a dolphin or down to the bottom to become land dwelling and eventually the flippers start turning into feet gradually like it there's just it seems like there's the it just looks very natural right that's i mean you look at from monkeys you know to humans like yeah i can see how there's similarities and then you see the the graph of the you know, Neanderthals or whoever else of the pre kind of human forms kind of gradually taken taken that shape and form. It just seems to make a lot of sense on that level. Um, but so what you're saying is, I guess my question would be, it just looks from a casual observation level, like what Darwin observed and what mm -hmm. I can see, that yeah, it, it makes sense. Why would the world look like that if it wasn't actually like that? That's a great question. The problem is what people are not doing is they're not looking at the raw data. You're taking very specific data points, arranging them in a very specific way to create a picture. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the example of um, uh, any transitional sequence you want to talk about, like whales. Mm -hmm. So you have this whale series, and you have a land animal you have it was it supposed to go from water to land or land to water. Well, well originally you have originally you had let's say from water to land where it was okay. fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals. Okay. But then the mammals went back into the water. Oh, oh, okay. And that's a bit more complicated because you have this land animal that's not adapted to the water that suddenly is supposed to evolve to go into the water and it has that to makes it. grass is always greener, my friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like get out of the water, you want back in the water, you know. And just... you have to compete with all these <laughs> highly advanced predators in the water already, yeah, like sharks. Right. Yeah. So what happens, though, is when you see this beautiful series where you have a land animal, you have something more amphibious, you have something like a whale, it looks really compelling. But what's presented, and, or at least the way people interpret it, is not quite what's really true. Mm -hmm. Because what evolutionists don't believe is they have a series of ancestor descendants going from the land to the water. They don't believe you have a clear line showing evolution action. Mm. What you have are more cousins. They have lots of species that they believe are closely related. They're on separate branches of the tree. And it sort of suggests this progression. Mm -hmm. The problem is, there's a couple of problems. The problem is when you look at any given species, if the fossil record is highly complete, mm -hmm. and that's what's key, is people make the case for evolution where the fossil record is less complete, so their imaginations have more room to fill in the data. Mm -hmm. But if you look at where it's really complete, like brachiopods, which are hard-shelled marine invertebrates, what you see is when something appears, it'll last for several million years and not change beyond superficial microevolutionary amounts. And then it goes extinct. So what happens is if you look at where the fossil record is more incomplete and you see creatures with different similarities, you can imagine they fit on an evolutionary tree. But you could do the same thing with human artifacts. You could imagine a, uh, an alien species looks in a junkyard a millennia in the future. What do they see? 
beautiful evolutionary progression of a unicycle to a bicycle to a motorcycle to a convertible car to a bus. And then you've got your side branches of small planes and large planes and so forth. So if you have engineering, you always have similarities. And you can often organize artifacts in hierarchies, like we've got transportation vehicles and you've got home appliances, you've got garden tools inside of transportation vehicles, you've got buses and automobiles versus planes and, mm -hmm. and cars. Mm -hmm. You see the same sort of hierarchy in nature. But the problem is the similarities are inconsistent. So they, the assumption is that similarities imply common ancestry. Mm -hmm. So we see these similarities between, let's say, a whale and some other species, and we assume that's because there's a common ancestor in the tree. The problem is there are so many similarities that don't fit the tree. The eyes of a human and the eyes of an octopus are very, very similar, but that's not because we have a common ancestor. Mm. I would argue it's because we have a common designer. In the same way, when you look at all of the species that exist, and you try to fit it into an evolutionary tree, the similarities are completely inconsistent with any tree you want to make. So you make the best tree you can, you try to see what seems the most similar, mm -hmm. but then there's lots of similarities that don't fit. Either there's, they're not there where they belong, or you have similarities in very, very distantly related creatures, so you have to argue they evolved independently. So if you look at the data out of the context of the overall pattern, if you cherry pick data and ignore the overall pattern, you can make a case for anything. But when you look at the data in its full context, what do you see? Uh, the fossil record shows that sudden appearance of new body plants, when any species appear, it doesn't change. Mm -hmm. There's lots of similarities, but the similarities are inconsistent with an evolutionary tree, but they look like what an engineer would do mm -hmm. using similar design modules for similar purposes. So if you have a million dots on a page, some of those dots purely by chance will, will form a, a straight line, like the whale series, like the horse series. But scientists can't cherry pick the evidence that fits their theory and ignore the overall pattern. That's the situation. Hmm. How much of this are you piecing together at the time versus the 30 years of kind of research you've done subsequently? Oh, this is, this is an ongoing process. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> totally. uh, yeah. so uh, way back in the day, it was simple issues. Oh, we see sudden appearance. You know, maybe common ancestry was true, I thought. And, and common ancestry isn't unreasonable. I would never criticize a person for believing that. Yeah. That's not unreasonable. So you can imagine that uh, things are linked biologically, at least scientifically. I won't go into the theology of that, but at least I wouldn't criticize someone for that. But even if you believe that, you have to recognize that the pattern does not look like a gradual random process. It, mm. You see changes in geological instances. Like if you look at almost all, we, we have a paleontologist, a person that studies fossils on our team named Gunter Beckley. And he was a top-level paleontologist, and he mocked the intelligent design literature. He said evolution is obviously true. And someone said to him, why don't you actually read the literature you're criticizing? So he read it, and he eventually realized that it was true. So he eventually realized that the evolutionary narrative didn't fit the data. Mm. So what happened as he started to look at the data through a different lens, he recognized that it doesn't look like a blind, undirected process, even if you believed in common ancestry, but you see changes that take place. Like you see um, these dinosaurs that, that live in the ocean that, that appear in a geological instance. Mm -hmm. You see the Cambrian explosion. You see the appearance of insects. The typical pattern is radical changes happen in a few million years. Now, that might be a long time compared to waiting for a Starbucks coffee. But if you look at the math, there's these mathematicians like Dered and Schmidt, and they ask the question, how long does it take if you need, let's say, two specific mutations which work together? Mm -hmm. The first one is neutral at a specific site. The second one is beneficial. How long does it take for them to appear and spread through the population? Well, let's look at the case of whales. It would take like 40 million years for two mutations, while the fossil record only gives you like 4 million years between a land animal and a whale. You look at humans. The, the time difference between, let's say, uh, Australopithecines, which is like an ape-like creature believed to be an ancestor, and the first human-like creatures, like mm -hmm. Homo erectus, mm -hmm. is like 2 million years. So, But it takes, oh, like 200 million years for two mutations to appear and spread through the population. Mm -hmm. So mathematically, 
the, peer, the appearance of these radical new innovations are in geological instances, which would be no more time than would be allowed for like three specific mutations. Gotcha. Well, if you want to re, if you want to reprogram the genome such that you go from a fish to amphibian, you're talking more like tens, hundreds of thousands of specific mutations. Okay. So there's, yeah, there's a lot there, and I'm sure the science just goes on and on and on. Oh yeah. I, here's here's kind of where my mind goes, and I there's I'm just gonna have to apologize to all the listeners out there because I'm not a scientist, and there might be some scientists listening like, oh, ask him this, ask him this, mm -hmm. ask him that. Sorry, but. <laughs> But here's, I guess here's where my mind goes. I feel like even in hearing this conversation, I know you and actually really respect you and have been around you enough to be like, yes, I'm all in. But like that is not this universal like sure. respect that I give across the board for quote unquote Christian scientists. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? I had this image, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say any names because I don't, I don't think that would be a very mm -hmm. kind thing to do. But there's just the Christian scientist that defends the idea of a very young earth right. that uh, is so anti-evolution right. that seems like it's completely ignoring scientific data it seems like it's using bible verses to try to right. prove scientific evidence i mean and so there's almost like this ah, it's just like almost like gag reflex sure that i have when it feels like you hear a christian speak scientifically with such conviction and again i know you and i know it's born out of incredible depth of data in fact, in everything you were saying, not building up straw men, but actually really investigating the best possible cases and seeing where the evidence leads you. So I, that's why I'm even talking to you here. Um, but I guess what what do you have to say for the for the person that's kind of having that gag reflex that uh, that I just feel in the background of my sure, own soul? Sure. And and what happened? And I um uh, I work with people, and um I know scientists that are that are young Earth creationists. They believe the Earth is about six thousand years old. Uh -huh. It was created in uh, six twenty-four hour days. And what happens is, if you ask them, what they would acknowledge is historically there has been a lot of creation scientists that have used bad science. Hmm. So they've made arguments about why the Earth is supposed to be young, and those arguments would be refuted 10 years more later, and there'd be new arguments, and they'd be refuted, and they mm -hmm. caricature the science by the evolutionists. Um, and that's why there is sort of this gag reflex, is because there has been a lot of bad science. Okay. However, there are young Earth creationists now, like Marcus Ross, um, who are very good scientists, and they're very honest about the data. And they feel, from a theological perspective, that the most faithful way to understand their faith is from le reading the days of Genesis literally. Mm -hmm. um, and they feel that if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, that the most consistent and really they feel the only coherent way to read it is from that perspective. So I respect them because they admit their assumptions. Okay. They feel that's the faithful way to understand scripture. They acknowledge that there's a lot of data that goes against them but they want to have the chance to argue from that perspective. Yeah. I respect that. Yeah. On the other side, you have like theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists like Biologos. You have people like Deborah Harzma, people um, like that. They were very Is sincere. Francis Collins? Francis Is Collins. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're very sincere Christians. And they their heart is to help the Christian community because they're concerned that if you argue against evolution and evolution they feel is very well supported by the evidence, then mm -hmm. you're you're risking people's faith. So they have- They're gonna throw away their faith over exactly, something that, yeah. Exactly, sure. they're told that evolution's not true, they go to school and- it's And proved. that's a real thing. People throw away their faith over very superficial oh, things yes. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so they're acting in good conscience, um, and I respect them. And I, I appreciate their, their, their brothers and sisters of Christ, both the young earth creationists, the theistic evolutionists. Um, I feel uh, is that the evidence so if you don't even think about the right way to interpret the Bible. And many people, uh, people that feel that that's not appropriate, they feel that you really do need to see it from a biblical perspective, whether it's young earth or old earth, and I respect that. Yeah. But our perspective at Discovery Institute, where I work, is that let's just look at the evidence and ask the question, where does the evidence lead? Regardless of how you interpret Genesis, regardless of even if you have theist uh, theological perspectives. And what's important to realize, is it's just not us. Like I went to a, a conference, the Royal Society of London, it was um, a conference on new trends in evolutionary biology. So these very secular, non-religious scientists have come together, top level evolutionary theorists, and they say, based on the science, the standard evolutionary model that's presented in your textbooks, mutation selection is false. 
It can explain small-scale changes like bacterial resistance. It could explain things like uh, finch beaks, but it can't explain amphibian going to a reptile. So this is not creationists. This is not even people that necessarily believe in God. Mm. This is uh, this is top-level evolutionary theorists, theorists who, based on the evidence, realize that the model is false. And what they're trying to do is come up with new uh, side models or, or new side theories or, or auxiliary hypotheses, things like niche construction, phenotypic plasticity, developmental bias, things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to expand the toolkit. However, what you find, and I went to the conference, is that they're very good at defining the problems. They're very good at talking about how these other uh, ideas can really help explain microevolutionary processes, small-scale mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. But they have nothing that can really explain large-scale change. There is nothing in their toolkit that even has the remotest chance to explain these radical innovations. So my opinion is not simply people that believe in a design, but this is what major scientists believe. Now, they're not the majority, and your average biologist may have very little knowledge of even what they're talking about, mm-hmm. but that's where, that's where secular science is going. In addition, what we believe is there's objective, positive evidence for design. When you look at things like what's called uh, systems biology, Biologists are realizing more and more that you have to apply principles from engineering to biology, feedback control systems, um, ideas of hierarchical design. Uh, all, all these systems, all these this design logic that you see in engineering, they realize applies to biology. Mm-hmm. You have these biologists talking about how the cell looks like a computational uh, system, almost like a combination of a computer with programming. But it's much more than that, but it's not less than that. So the more biology advances, the more you see positive evidence for design. So for instance, my specialty is the origin of life. And if you look at the origin of life, what people are realizing, a scientist like Paul Davies, who I don't think is particularly religious, is that the origin of life requires information. Information is something that transcends the chemistry and physics of the material. So, and that's really significant because what we argue is information is a clear evidence of a designer of a mind the analogy i use is if you have a bowl a bowl of uh, alphabet soup and you stir up you stir up the soup you might see a word like he or she but you're not going to see the declaration of independence Mm -hmm. if you see that much information uh in that system you know it's designed because letters uh, because sentences and paragraphs is information that transcends it's not associated with the physics or chemistry of the pasta in the same way in the origin of life, you have to have information in protein sequences and DNA, and that always points to a designer. So I would say the science, regardless of your theological perspective, is pointing to a designer. Uh, and I am very respectful of Christians that have different perspectives about biology for good for good reasons. I just want them to do good science. Yeah. You're very kind about it. I feel like uh, I feel like some of my maybe more personal experiences, feeling like in some ways an outsider to Christianity, right? You know, and coming in and realizing a whole lot of kids growing up and a whole lot of churches and a whole lot of families that have been taught very one small mm-hmm. way of how things have to be. And I I guess maybe I'm not as upset as the way people would interpret the Bible as maybe six literal mm-hmm. days or the age of the earth, so forth, as much as saying that that is the hinge point right. to determine right. whether you are right. actually a Christian yes. or yes. you believe the Bible is God's yes. Word. You make it this really high-level, um, divisive, more than divisive, really, a, a, like to die for sort of faith issue, like martyrdom sort of right. thing. You're going to lay your life on the line for this sort of thing. Um, and I guess that's where... Um, I guess that's where I'm happy for it to be lower than mm-hmm. I'm willing to be a martyr for it, and maybe even lower than I'm even willing to die over it. But I just feel like the um, I get I get the resistance from the scientific mm-hmm. community that's even picked up on in pop culture that just says, look, if you're just going to take faith as the pre- presumption that is going to inform or filter out the scientific data you are and are not going to be willing to consider, that that's a real problem. You're absolutely right. And I think what's really encouraging is I think Christians of all different perspectives are understanding better what the core issues are, Mm. things like the resurrection. We have to, right? And and even people like I think Norman Geisler, who I believe himself is a young earth creationist, is arguing that that's not a hinge point of faith. Yeah. 
that you can't make that as a litmus test what true believers are. Yeah. So in, it, it's definitely the case when we are in any, any community that we sometimes fail to recognize the difference between core beliefs that we need to defend yeah. and secondary issues that we can show charity with. They may be yeah. very important issues, yeah. but it's, they're not, it doesn't mean you are or not a Christian. Yeah. But I have, to, I have to say, though, the more I talk to scientists that have embraced a philosophy called materialism, and that's okay. the idea that there's only matter and energy and all scientific explanations have to only appeal to simple natural processes. Right. When I talk to them and present evidence about design and biology or the, the challenges to the origin of life, their response is no different from a, the most stereotypical fundamentalist. They're just as rigid, they're just as close-minded, and they're just as willing to ignore facts and data. There's no difference I see. Mm. The human experience travels uh, crazily across the boundary lines we often draw between each other, for sure. I've definitely noticed that, that uh, the, the, um, the, the, um, the idea of the very close-minded, rigid, fundamentalist sort of Christian. I actually found very, very conservative Christians to be quite kind and open-minded. Yes. You know? yeah. And I found the people that claim to be most tolerant and liberal to often be, as you're describing, almost very fundamentalistic yeah. and, and rigid right. and close-minded. Um, so I've seen, I've just seen it on, on all sides and all perspectives. Uh, I've seen rich people very stingy, seen mm -hmm. poor people very generous, and vice versa. I've seen rich people amazingly generous and poor people very stingy. So I feel like these easy caricatures, mm -hmm. I'm kind of throwing that out because I have that immediate reaction. I'm sure a lot of other people do as well, but that's all really, really helpful perspective. Um, Brian, I'm sure there's a lot of science stuff that would be really fascinating, and there's a few other things I, I would love to talk about. Um, but maybe this will help us get there a little bit because one of one of your real passions um, and one of your roles is that of kind of evangelist. Like mm -hmm. you go out actually presenting a compelling case through scientific evidence for not only the existence of God, but even for the Christian story as the most coherent narrative that helps us make sense of the world that we live in. Um, and so I guess I'm I'm very curious. You've been in a lot of contexts around the world. Um, where you've been presenting all this, you know, all your findings and presenting all your, your evidence and everything that you've got, what, uh, what do you find to be the most ev evangelistically, if I can use that word, compelling for people who are not Christian um, to really consider the weight and validity of Christianity? Well, that's a great question. Wow, that's a really good question. And let me just throw in a little caveat. Is it's, it's sort of, I'm in a complex place because I work for Discovery Institute and I'm part of the intelligent design community. But not everyone in that community is actually religious. Mm -hmm. So we're like a group of scientists. Really? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we've got agnostics. We've got people that aren't quite sure what they believe. So people that would say, like, we see there's a mind, that there's right. some kind of creative element happening yes. that isn't just blind scientific forces. Yes. That some, uh, would they go as far as to say that it's a personalized sort of presence? No, or? no, no oh. they would not. Okay. I mentioned Michael Denon before, and I, I don't think he would quite say there's a personal presence. It's more of maybe something like a platonic form or some deep structure of the universe. And you have people like it's uh, mysterious, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, it's intellect for sure. It knows yeah. what it's doing. It has, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. there's evidence of design. In fact, there's a book by Thomas Nagel, who's a agnostic, maybe atheist philosopher, who says that the materialistic view of the world doesn't work. Mm. He says that the intelligent design arguments make sense. For personal reasons, he doesn't want to believe in a personal god, so he's trying to wrestle with what that means. Now, I would argue, and I do argue, yeah. Um, and there are, and I would say uh, a large number of the people in the intelligent design community are Christian. In fact, many who did not start out that way, like Gunter Beckley, saw the evidence for design in nature. And what happened is he realized that that had deep implications beyond the science. So he was on a multi-year journey where he'd explored all sorts of philosophical and religious systems and eventually realized that Christianity, for other reasons, was true. Yeah. Because the evidence from, from science points to a creator outside of time and space, the God that created the universe. The universe had a beginning. A God who created the laws of physics for the purpose of life. The laws are carefully designed for life. A God who created life itself, because if you look at the origin of life, it's physically impossible for a cell to form without an intelligent agent. You see information. So that all points to a creator outside of time and space, who is involved in the world, who is interested in life. But that doesn't quite get you to the Christian God. Gotcha. So for me, you then have to go to the evidence of the resurrection and then the supernatural power of God that touched my life. 
evidence for morality, different things like that. Okay. So that's kind of, so when I speak to a community, I usually give a full picture, but in terms of the science, I think the fine tuning of the laws of physics is yeah. very compelling. Yeah. That Agreed. if you change the laws even a little bit, like if gravity were an itsy bitsy bit stronger or weaker, there wouldn't be uh, life-giving planets. Mm -hmm. If you took, let's say, um, the early density of the universe and it was different by one part in 10 to the 24, that's like a one with 24 zeros, you wouldn't have planets or stars that form. That's very compelling. Um, also, if you look at the origin of life, what happens is I mentioned before, life is dependent upon information and information is only a product of the mind. That's very compelling. Now, it's interesting if you comb the internet, there's people that say that information can come about through natural process, and it's junk science. Because again, I use the analogy of the soup bowl, you're not going to get information, specific sequences that perform a function that have a purpose through any natural process, except for small amounts. Like, like the immunity system, it randomizes these, uh, these protein sequences and allows you to create like an antibody that goes to an antigen. So you can create very small amounts of information through chance processes, but you can't create anything close to the amount of information for a cell mm. or the amount of information necessary to turn, let's say, a worm into something like a fish. I've heard that that's one of the early assumptions of, of evolutionary theory, yeah. that modern science has certainly debunked the more that we know about cellular biology, yeah. quantum even, like yeah. physics and so forth, the, the smaller and smaller that we get in the universe, that there's not like this really, the cell isn't some basic Lego sort of building yeah. block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this immensely dense, complex yeah. city of robotic yeah. mechanisms and designed, you know, uh, machinery to, you know, and, and, you know, power factories that are equally as complicated as any that we have existing, you know, in our world that, 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 that even at the smallest level, no matter how far we go, it only gets more complicated, not simple. So the idea that anything can just come from the simple things and go from there gets pretty difficult. And that's not ending because not just that the cell in of itself in its entirety is complex. Even if you look at a cell membrane, the cell membrane is not just a bunch of simple molecules together. You've got incredibly complex proteins that act like gates that allow the right molecules in and out. Oh my goodness. You've got sugars that are on the surface that help for signaling. So even if you take a part of the cell and you magnify it, it's looking more and more complex. It just doesn't seem to end. Mm. But that's key because there was actually some, uh, uh, some engineers from NASA, they talked about what does it take to create a self-replicating machine that's autonomous? And they came up with a whole list of what you need, energy production, information processing, error correction, uh, sensing the environment, computational control, uh, automated um, production assembly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Incredibly complex list. You look at life, what do you see? The exact same things. So there's a theoretical limit to how simple a cell can get. If you look at the simplest cell we know of, a microplasma, uh, which is actually a very simple cell because it's a parasite. So it's a much easier life for that than something that lives in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So if you look at what is the simplest cell a cell can get, you're talking about hundreds of uh, genes. You're talking about like a million bits of information. You're talking about incredibly sophisticated machinery. So when you look at that, it clearly points to design, the information, the logic, the structure, the machinery. And for people that don't believe it looks in, like it's designed, it's not because of the evidence, because they've chosen as a matter of faith that they won't even consider the possibility of design. Hmm. There's a famous quote by a Harvard biologist named Richard Levantin, and he basically says that the scientific community is willing to accept unsubstantiated just-so stories uh, that are completely unintuitive because they're not willing to allow a divine foot in the door. They have chosen a priori as a matter of faith to ignore and reject design. Mm -hmm. It's not scientific, it's philosophical. Mm. But that That's is a key an, distinction. Yes, yeah. and it's an extremely powerful argument. Now, another uh, argument, which is very intuitive, is that, and, and one thing I used to do, and still I'm part of, is, is I was a consultant for an innovation company. So we think about how do you create innovative new gadgets or innovative new processes. Mm -hmm. And if you study uh, the theory of innovation, what you realize quickly is that small scale gradual changes can improve something that exists. You have a car, you can make small changes mm -hmm. to make a better car. Sure. 
But what never, ever works under any circumstances, you can't make small changes to go from one design logic, yeah. one architecture, one structure to a different design logic. Mm. You can't go from a helicopter, a, a car to a helicopter in a step-by-step -step process without making the car much worse before it gets much better. Yeah. An example in biology would be if you look at the idea of where the human or where uh, mammal hearing comes from. We've got these three bones which form a lever arm for our hearing. And if you look at in, let's say, a therapsid, which is like a mammal like reptile, which was the ancestor believed to be of mammals, you have one bone. So how are you going to evolve from one bone to three bones? They're it's a different logic. It's a different design constraints. As soon as you, let's say, detach that one bone from whatever is receiving the, the sound for hearing, you lose hearing entirely. You don't get it back until all three of those bones are perfectly shaped, perfectly positioned, perfectly attached to the environment to create the lever arm. And people believe the two bones came from, from the jaws of, of the therapsid. So that's a simple example of how you have to get worse before you get better. And that's true with every single major evolutionary innovation. Mm. That's a very powerful argument because people often accuse those of us that believe in design as appealing to the god of the gaps. Yes, yeah, I was actually gonna ask about that, right? So we don't understand it, so we just throw up our arms, give up on science. Everything we don't understand, say, we just say, it's God. God. It. <laughs> but then science eventually comes along and explains yeah. more than it was able to previously, and so then eventually those gaps get narrower and exactly. narrower. And every time we find a new gap, we fill it with God, but then eventually science fills it. And so they just see, well, we sense the pattern here according to their narrative and right. say like, can we just get rid of the God and the gaps yeah. and just think eventually science will cover it and we're right. good? And that argument demonstrates a complete lack of awareness of how science has advanced over the last century. Because what you see is exactly the opposite. Every attempt to, de to deny the evidence of design, every attempt to explain away a complex innovation by some evolutionary narrative, those stories always collapse as the science becomes better known. Mm. There's not one evolutionary narrative for a complex innovation like the hearing system of a mammal or uh, the eye with the complex camera-like vision that actually works when the science becomes better known. In addition, people always say that there's poor design in biology. Like people used to say that the wiring of our photoreceptors is backwards because what you have is a photoreceptor doesn't point outward to the light, it's backwards. It points inward and you've got the nerves at the end of it. Mm. That looks like a terrible design. And people said that's proof that it's not designed. But as yeah. people studied it, they realized, no, that's the way it has to be designed. Because the photoreceptors and vertebrate eyes are use a lot of energy. And they would burn out if they weren't directly connected to tissues that could replenish them. And in fact, there's blood that flows much faster to cool them down. So the design of the vertebrate eye is essential for vision. So that countless, there's countless examples of where biologists said this looks badly designed, that shows that it they just evolved by chance, where science is advanced, and we see that it's actually very good design. Mm. So you constantly end up with what I would call materialism of the gaps. Mm. Like with origin of life. You're flipping the script on them, in exactly. other words. So like in origin of life, what you have in origin of life is something that's physically impossible because a cell has both very high order and very high energy. And no process in the universe ever simultaneously goes to both high order mm -hmm. and high energy. You can do one or the other, but not both at the same time. And again, you look at a cell and what happens is every step in the origin of life they think makes sense or is possible only does so because they don't understand the science. The more the science advances, the more that every step looks increasingly implausible and the positive evidence for design continuously increases. Wow. There's a lot there. I know there's a lot for people to chew on. Um, I think we're, we're getting close here to the end of our time. Um, but uh, I, f I feel like there's a few topics that uh, there's some people out there that would just love to see if you want to weigh in on. You don't know these are coming. So I'm going to rapid fire. There's a couple things at you. You don't have to take long if you don't have a whole lot to say. But anything interesting you got, I want you fire away. Okay. Sound good? Sure. Okay. Uh, so how about uh, how about this one? This one came up multiple times over the weekend, climate change. And I, I guess I know science <laughs> yeah, is yeah, this yeah. huge category, yeah, which yeah, and that's a very yeah, specific yeah. subset. Yeah. But climate change. Great question. And honestly, um, it's very, very, very complex science. And I have not studied it enough to be able to speak authoritati authoritatively on it. What you find 
It's the more, the I just appreciate you saying that, first yeah. of all, from the front end. It's yeah. easy for anyone with a PhD to claim mm-hmm. authoritative knowledge and pretty much anything they want. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I appreciate yeah. you saying that. And that's a common myth is that you get the PhD certificate and suddenly you have omnipotence over all fields. Anyone that's actually, I'm actually in a doctoral program right now. The, the reality is the opposite. You yeah. narrow in what you know, you don't broaden. Exactly. So, yeah. exactly. Anyway. so, what happens is the people that are concerned about climate change would argue that carbon dioxide is definitely increasing, and that's definitely been shown to uh, increase the greenhouse effect, so things get warmer. Mm-hmm. They would point to computational models that, that suggest that they have an idea of what this carbon dioxide is doing. The people that are a bit more skeptical would argue that there was a period in the past which was a warming period. Um, there was also a period of like a mini ice age. So we're actually in more of a cycle. Yeah. And the big debate is over what are called proxy measures, like how accurate are those measurements of temperatures in the past? Mm. So has the temperature been constant, which the people that are most concerned about climate would say it was, well, or would the, the climate have been oscillating, mm-hmm. which is what the skeptics would say. And I, I don't have the expertise to be able to evaluate that argument. Yeah. I do know it's become political, and that's a challenge. Whenever yes. science yeah, becomes sure. political... You have to be very careful because you can get into groupthink. Yep. So people that don't accept the consensus can be ostracized. They can be threatened. They yep. can lose research money. And, and that's a huge problem because that's it's so political. That's applicable in so many categories. Yeah. So, and there's even financial exactly. in- incentives here, yeah. right, in terms yeah. of like uh, you know renewable energies and so yeah. forth. There's, there's yeah. real companies and real people and real yeah. dollars here that can be influenced by different policies. So yeah. it's hard for to feel like you're truly getting... An unbiased perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yes. And but a thoughtful approach is that I think everyone recognizes that transitioning from fossil fuels would be a good thing. Yes, right. right. Well, the yeah. financial incentive is certainly on that side as well. Sure. So I guess I'm only presenting one side of the argument. It just seems like everyone has a very large dog in the oh, fight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. Like there's so much money at stake. Yeah, yeah. Both ways. Yeah, trillions. So as a scientist, I think what is fair to say is what would be really good is a few technological advancements. Mm. Like we need to make solar cells cheaper perhaps use different metals that aren't as expensive. That would be really, really good. Yeah, but the, be sweet. the big issue is batteries because even storage, storage. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even if you've got all the solar cells you want, it only works during the day. <laughs> half the, half so the day. you you have to store yeah. enormous amounts of energy and then be able to transport it to areas that don't have sunlight. That's right. So I like think like us. We yes. live in the Northwest. So Yeah. So it's definitely a good thing. Uh, because obviously if you go to LA there's lots of pollution. It'd be really, really nice to not have to make so much pollution, acid rain. So, so I think the really important issue would be to really invest in battery technology yep. and then to try to transition to renewables as as quickly as we can in such a way that doesn't create... Destroy the economy. Yeah, undo hardship. <laughs> yes. And it's really tricky because let's imagine you invest a trillion dollars in solar cells and 10 years later, the solar cells are one-tenth the price. Mm-hmm. So that's always a hard question of how do you know when oh, to pull the way trigger? Way above my pay grade. Yeah. yeah. So... These are the things that people wrestle with, and, uh, and but I think that's a responsible way to move forward is battery technology, cheaper solar cells, and then try to come up with a way to make the transition that doesn't devastate the lives of millions of people. Sure. And from the biblical perspective, clearly from Genesis 1, humans have a responsibility to care for the earth. And, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that we've anti-cared for it in terms yeah. of the condition that it's in, even wherever you politically fall on the role of humans in, in whatever climate change or global warming, whatever else, I don't even know what the right terminology I'm supposed to use anymore. Um, I don't biblically have a problem with, with saying that humans have had a role and yeah. it has been negative and we do need, we have responsibility to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Biblically, I don't have a problem with that. I just know there's it's a confluence of so many different bits of information. Yeah. There's uh, politics, there's economics, you know, there's, there's the science and there's all these, you know, very, very complicated realms that um, even if, even if a lot of people agree on it, there's still not a whole lot of easy solutions out there that can all come together. So that's a little just bit of the sh- of shrugging of the shoulders there, even though I acknowledge it, it is an important an important issue. Um, how about this? Um, AI. Oh, yes. Yeah. So what's, uh, what, what's really coming down the pipeline versus AI? What do we really need to be concerned about? Is right, there, right, right. I mean, we're going to live in Terminator, right, you know, Judgment right. Day kind of right, stuff, or right. what's, what's happening here? Well, interestingly enough, Discovery Institute is partnering with a group called the Bradley Center for Artificial and Human Intelligence. So we actually- so you're one of them. Well, we have a new uh, we we have a new center that's working on terminators. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was just about um, to say. We we have a new center that's this actually is, this is where I only dip into mild conspiracy yeah, theories yeah, on the AI yeah. side. I feel like I've seen every sci-fi movie yeah. that tells me this is going to go wrong. So, so we 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 actually have people like uh, uh, Robert Marx, 
that are um, who's in charge of it who are actually really focusing on mm-hmm. that issue. Mm-hmm. Because let's talk about not science fiction, but reality. The reality is we're talking about a technological change that will lose jobs and gain jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's going to be enormous And maybe economic... lose a lot more than it gains, at least in the beginning. Yeah, yes, yes. There's going to be a lot of painful transition. Yeah. Is it bad? In the beginning, it'll be rough, but it doesn't have to be bad in the long term. So, for instance, when people had automobiles, the huge question was, what about people that ran a horse and buggy? Hmm. They're all going to be unemployed. What about them? We, we managed. We figured it out. It was painful yeah. at first. but So we've got to be very um, conscientious about what jobs we'll lose, and there'll be a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about this. I mean, just look at the Internet. I mean, how many people book travel agencies? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many travel agencies are there? Yeah, good point. So you have to, you have to specialize. What happens with a call centers when an artificial intelligence can answer all your questions? Yeah, which Google is kind of doing now. Have you seen how Google can book oh. appointments for you now? Oh, oh yes, yes. Have you seen that? They've done the, yeah. the little Google presentation and they yeah. recorded a phone call, like calling like a hair salon and so forth. And they, it sounds like a natural human voice with every... So I'm calling to make an appointment mm-hmm. for Chris. Uh, and they say, oh, sure, let me check our calendar. How does Saturday work? Yeah, Saturday works fine in the late afternoon. And the, like, the Google yep. voice is responding in That's real time. As a, you'd never know it was a robot. Or how about this? And, you, and people think it's all low-scale jobs, like factory workers. But what about this? What if you have a computer that can diagnose you? You put your arm into yeah. uh, some device. It takes yeah. a blood sample. You ask questions. And it can get your diagnosis better than a doctor. Yeah. What does that mean for the medical industry? So... The whole artificial intelligence issue is something that we have to think about very carefully, think about re-education, think about new type of jobs, think about new ways to teach people. And you're going to lose a lot of jobs, but what if you gain jobs? Like, for instance, what if there's a new market for artists? Mm. What if suddenly art becomes a commodity? So all those people that would have, let's say, been in a factory now can paint. Is that guaranteed? No, it's not. But as a society, we have to think about how we might incentivize uh, work that could that could promote human flourishing yeah. and help to create new jobs. But it is very serious. We have to think about it. Now, in terms of Terminators, uh, no. Because what happens is... Pe- now, I've heard from a reliable source, a.k.a. Elon Musk. Ah, right. Um, and Mark Cuban, actually. Right, right. Uh, that both say this is sooner than later. Right. And uh, that that basically what we have in terms of aerial drones will be happening in terms of land based drones, you know, in bipod form or whatever. Okay, there's a big difference between soft artificial intelligence and strong artificial intelligence. Oh, sure. But I think they're actually making the case they will actually be autonomous, you know. Uh, right. And, and but, there's, uh, but there's still a difference between an autonomous vehicle that does something simple like it tracks you, it kills mm. you, which would be bad. <laughs> from from uh, You don't know me, Brian. Right. That wouldn't be simple at all. Right. Or, or something that's like <laughs> that has sentience. Like okay. that's a big issue is sentience, yep. self-awareness. Yep. So we, we have people that, that work with artificial intelligence. They're mathematicians or computer scientists. And a lot of the concern for sentience, the, the, lot, the large concern that you'll have a robot like a human brain is overblown. Uh, it may not even be theoretically possible because all the algorithms we create are algorithms that, that do what we tell it to do. Mm-hmm. They don't decide what to do. Like you have Deep Blue that can play chess, but it doesn't want to go on a date with Deep Pink after it wins a chess match. So artificial intelligence is very serious. And Didn't Google... Now, I feel like I've read the story where they created an artificial intelligence that started talking with other, and they started, they actually created their own language, and it went so far, and no one could even understand what they're talking about anymore. They just had to shut it down. Uh, it, is that, is that a, do you know about this? I don't. I can ask. There's, we have experts that, that I think can, about this. I and, don't know if that's going to be Googling something yeah. to figure out that Google did. That might, uh, it, and, and a lot of um, a lot of artificial intelligence is absolutely amazing, no question about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But the difference is self awareness and self initiative. Yeah. So you might create something that can create a language that can respond to simple commands, but something that can take initiative that can show show true inspiration Decide and creativity. To exterminate the virus exactly. of humanity, sort of. Exactly. Thing. You're not going to get that anytime soon. Mm. So, so we're not, we're not headed towards the matrix. Anytime no, soon. we're not headed towards that anytime soon. All right. There's a good reason to believe it's not even theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. And that gets into the issue of the fact that the mind may be more than just, and I believe it's more, than just a physical entity. It's not just the brain, but there's a supernatural element, a transcendent element, a soul that's non-physical, which is why we will always be able to do things that machines can't. Yeah. Well, uh, here's uh, here's my final question. We're going to close on this one. Brian Miller, you get a free ticket to go with Elon Musk to Mars. Do you take it? 
No, and here's why. Um, <laughs> what happens is uh, it, it, the person that goes on that trip will die <laughs> because there's solar flares that'll happen, and you can't shield against the solar flares uh, because in space or on Mars. Uh, in the in the trip to sp- yeah, to Mars, yeah, uh-huh. the reason we don't die on the Earth is because <laughs> we've got this amazing magnetic shield that protects us from the radiation. So we're nowhere near the technology to take a person to Mars without dying. The fact that we got to the moon and back is because we were lucky. There wasn't a solar flare at the wrong time. Oh, really? So, yeah. So really. So what happens is going. A friend of mine actually works at NASA as a physicist. So. Any trip to Mars will be a one-way trip, and I don't. And maybe when I'm 90, yes, but not anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know, Brian. I did watch The Martian and read the book, uh, and uh, it sure seems like you can poke a hole in your spacesuit and navigate back home anytime. Well, well far be it for me to question the, the wisdom <laughs> of science fiction. So I'll just I'll pass on that one. Oh, Brian Miller, this has been thoroughly enjoyable enlightening. I hope it's helpful for a lot of people out there. It's certainly opening up a can of worms for people to go and explore. Can you drop a couple really great just book recommendations for people that want to dig in further beyond here? Uh, there's some great books. Like if you're curious about the information ideas or Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer, there's um, there's Darwin's, Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer. There's a great book by Douglas Axe called Undeniable, which basically shows how the intuition that humans have for design is true. Uh, there's another book on human origins. It's uh, by Ann Gager and Casey Luskin and others. I can't remember the top the, the title off the top of my head. That's a nice one on human origins because some people have said there could not be an Adam and Eve, but there really can be. That's a really hard topic. Um, although there's yeah, lots theologically. of lots yeah. of unanswered questions. That's yeah, a that's a nice one. book. Uh, and let me think. What's a, what's another good one? Um, Oh, another great one by by Jonathan Wells is called Zombie Science. It talks about how a lot of the icons of evolution are not actually true. Mm. And if you go to if you go to discovery.org mm-hmm. at discovery.org slash ID, which is the intelligent design part, you can actually sign up for a regular email list, uh, nota bene, to get regular updates on our science. And there's a whole list of books there also. Lots of videos. Great videos ranging from unlocking the mystery of life about um, irreducible complexity of the cell, Darwin's dilemma about the Cambrian explosion. We've got a book, uh, we've got a video on metamorphosis, which is like an incredible story of how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Uh, uh, Oceans about whales and echolocation, uh, flight. So there's lots of great resources about intelligent design on that resource. That's fantastic. I'll try to pick up all those uh, book titles that Brian dropped and put them in the show notes below. So in case you are multitasking on the treadmill or driving or something like that and can write all those down, you can just check the show notes afterwards and uh, and hopefully pick up one of those that sounds interesting to you. Brian, no, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 